This is Dr. Lawrence C. Scott, a um, professor emeritus of economics at LSU and president of Lawrence C. Scott and Associates, Inc. One of the true heavyweights in the industry. Uh, you do forecasting for the state of Louisiana when it comes, comes to energy and economics generally, don't you? Well, what, we, uh, what I put out and have been putting out for almost four decades is the Louisiana Economic Outlook. And in the Louisiana Economic Outlook, we always have forecasts for oil prices and for natural gas prices and also for employment in the kind of key oil and gas sectors of our state, which is uh, basically Shreveport, uh, Shreveport, Homa, and Lafayette, big oil centers. So if you're going to, you know, we're the number, what? well, at one time we were the number two producer of oil, number two producer of natural gas in the country. I think we slipped a bit on natural gas. And so if you're going to forecast the Louisiana economy, you got to know the energy sector. Without a doubt. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on today's program is you, you do a great job of just stating the way things are. And, you know, whether you agree or disagree with me, that sort of thing. And one of these questions I'm going to ask today is more of a, you know, it's more of a speculative question mixed with a little bit of politics and, and mixed with just some common sense here. And we don't get into politics on this program, but this is this is something I think a conversation needs to have in the world of natural gas. Um, when we look at the subsidies, the government subsidies that have gone to, like, say, solar and wind, for example, um, what would happen if we shifted that to natural gas? And the reason I say that is because the f- flaring is a real problem and there's a lot of great little science projects going on but the oil and gas industry is taxed quite a bit and they do pay a lot of fees and then they support a lot of church bake sales and kids softball uniforms and everything else and then now they got to pay for research and development on top of it too um what would happen do you think is that even a conversation that anybody would be open to if they shifted some of those solar and wind dollars to natural gas because i think it's a solvable problem and that's the that's my approach on this is that not because they need subsidies but because i think it's an actual solution that could happen in the next five to ten years well i mean i i i number one they, they don't need it i mean right now we're we're producing more natural gas than we can say grace over and of course the the, the clear indicator of that is you guys and what the people in the Permian Basin are now doing with a lot of natural gas, that is, they're having, they're having to flare it off. They're having to flare it off because they don't have enough ways to get it the heck out of where they are mm-hmm. right now. As a matter of fact, some natural gas that's actually flowing out of the Permian Basin has been selling at a negative price. The producers have been paying people to take it uh, that because there's just so darn much of it that they have to get rid of. Uh, I... I I, we could have a whole long conversation about uh, the role of natural gas versus renewables. I have to be a big uh, believer in fossil fuels and natural gas in particular. But the, 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 whatever, whatever you and I may think about it, uh, the renewables like wind and solar have got a grasp on uh, especially the utility side. Uh, they, they, they are servicing customers and the customers are flat demanding that the, some of their uh, electricity be produced with uh, renewables. They're just demanding that, and which to me is really kind of crazy because you're going to end up happening here what happened in Europe, and that is when they started switching to renewables, the price 
uh, their electricity went up. In some cases, went up markedly. So, so much so that some of them started backing off on uh, demanding so much, um, so much wind and solar. So, uh, I, I think we uh, n- number one. I think there's zero appetite out there for uh, subsidizing uh, natural gas, uh, politically speaking, and I think. Um, there is there is some appetite out there for subsidizing wind and solar, but even that is starting to go away now. They're basically saying, "Look, if you want to compete, compete out there with natural gas." I think that's more towards where things are leaning right now. Well, I, let's do a quick little brief about the natural gas and 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 the renewables because. You know, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I would say that if I'm looking from a 5,000-foot view, the subsidies that have gone into the wind and solar industry over the last, say, 20 years and the projections that were given back to us, um, whether it be the politicians or from, from, the, from the energy companies themselves, has fallen short. You know, they're not at the mega, megawatt of... Uh, or terawatt of storage like they thought they would be in solar. And a lot of the reports coming out of Texas now that these uh, solar panels did not make the, the money or the returns that they thought they would. And so, and I agree with you, there's zero, zero appetite for a conversation in this. That's why I'm having it, because I just see how close we are to actually solving a real problem as a country. And, and you know, I there's there it's it's a shame to see all that natural gas get flared is what i'm getting at so just talk, yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, i mean I, I totally agree with you there are so many advantages that natural gas has over wind and solar as i see it uh, number one is we've got plenty of it uh the nice thing about natural gas is it's always there it's the one constant you got plenty of it it's going to be there whereas the wind does not always blow and the sun does not always shine and uh, when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, which typically happens at the very time you need the wind to blow and the sun to shine, is uh, you have to you have to have a backup, and that backup is always going to be uh, natural gas-fired power plants. And there's other there's just other things that the other that the people who promote this just just grossly ignore. One is that wind and solar take up huge amounts of land. I mean, you have to cut down lots of trees to put in. Uh, a solar facility, you know, especially the states in the southeast that are very wooded. You know, the west is not so bad, but in the southeast, you got to cut down a lot of trees. And it's amazing if you're cutting down trees for wind and solar, you know, there's no hue and cry about spotted owl uh, habitat going away or bird habitat going. They don't care in those particular cases, which brings us to in case of wind people, uh, the, the, the environmentalists totally ignore the bird kill. I mean, the bird kill on, on the on, on wind is just astonishing. The, the uh, Ottoman Institute looked at just one canyon, uh, Colorado, can, uh, excuse me, California, it's called the Amata Canyon, I believe that's right. And that one canyon kills something like 4,000 birds a year. And it's very indiscriminate. You know, you got you got golden eagles in there. You got raptors in there, not just sparrows and other birds that you don't, you might not really care about. So the, the wind and solar folks get away with a lot simply because they're renewable. And I, I think that's that's a side that needs to be spoken about a whole lot more than it is. Let me ask you about the wind wind programs reclamation uh, last I checked. It's been a number of years, but my understanding was is they really didn't have a 
cohesive or very, very, very good uh, reclamation program. So a lot of those farmers are just going to have those wind turbines sitting there long after their expiration date. Well, there's that. Plus, I think a lot of farmers who uh, who bought into that also discovered something else, and that is that living close to 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 uh, wind turbines is not a particularly happy thing to go through. I mean, they are not quiet. Uh, there is a hum that's associated with them that is that is nerve-wracking to many people. That man has been a problem as well, and so and it's just not all nice you now. I'm actually from the Permian Basin. I'm from West Texas. And out there, you don't have to worry about trees. And you don't have to worry about birds so much. There's not any, hardly any birds because it's so such much of a desert uh, area. So it, it's okay. The problem is you, you keep coming back to this, and that is that the wind doesn't blow all the time. In particular, the wind doesn't blow so much in, in June and July. June, July, and August, it's just not real constant like it is the rest of the times of year. And that's the very time you need to be generating electricity to run our air conditioners. And they haven't figured out the storage problem yet uh, when it comes to electricity generated by wind and solar. And uh, until they do that, uh, they've just got, it's, it's going to still remain, I think, almost a single digit part of our, of our electricity grid. How about when it comes to solar? Um, of course, solar, a lot of people think it's a great renewable as well. Some of the things that I've looked at is, of course, the, the mining when it comes to creating the batteries that are behind sure. uh, is, is a little bit more like that. Your, bird, your, your bird issue reminded me of the issues with solar, which are kind of counterintuitive, too. And this goes all the way back to the paper and plastic bag argument when people started realizing that uh, paper bags were worse for the environment than plastic ones because paper ones, not only are you cutting the trees down, but now you got to use all of this other energy in order to create the pulp and the paper and the bags, et cetera, et cetera. That's what I see happening on the solar side of things is, is you know, is are, between the production and the, and the lithium mines and everything else, what, what are some of the issues that you see with solar? Those are the ones that I see. They're not up to, up to par, but um, are there are other disadvantages to solar that you see? Well, I mean, the, the, again, to me, the main thing is if you want to do solar anywhere other than the desert areas of the United States, um, you, if you want to do it, say, in the southeastern part of the United States or the northeastern part, just the eastern part of the United States in general, you've got to cut down a, a humongous amount of trees. You've got to destroy a lot of forest in order to start meaningfully generating a lot of, uh, of uh, uh, electricity by way of solar. And, of course, that's also the area of the country that quite often is cloudy. Uh, and for sure, the sun only suns half the time of the year. Uh, and, the, and and also, if you read some of the literature on the bird kill associated with, uh, with solar, there's quite a bit of that, too, because what you're doing is you're taking those those mirrors and you reflected it into one place and if the birds fly through that place it's like being zapped i mean they just get zapped as they fly through that area so um to me we keep kind of coming back uh to when it comes to solar your fuel costs are almost free but there's a whole lot of stuff that is not free and the bird kill the destruction of forest area um, the fact that you can't store it yet, they haven't figured out a way to do that. What that means is you always have to have a coal-fired power plant, not really, uh, excuse me, a natural gas-fired power plant as a backup 
when the wind doesn't blow, the sun doesn't shine, which means ultimately you're still going to have to you're still going to have to pay for that, that gas powered power plant. And it's it's just not clear to me that in the long run this is a good plan. Well, and that's why I keep going back to this the the, the crazy argument for natural gas subsidies because it just seems like no matter how you slice and dice it, whether you're talking about coal or whether you're talking about natural gas, I'm sorry, uh, wind or solar, it just seems like that natural gas has to be there as the failsafe, as the safety net. And right now we've got such an abundance, like you were saying, it's trading on a negative dollar value down there in the Permian because of there's so much of it. But then I just see all these, you know, these capitalists that are, you know, the one guy, there's some crazy guy up in Canada using natural gas to mine bitcoins. I don't even know how that works, but good for him, you know, and then you got these other guys trying to convert it into liquid natural gas and other guys trying to turn it into batteries and everything. I just see where, you know, solar and wind has really had, you know, no pun intended, but they've had their day in the sun and their advancements are, are, you know, less than stellar. They 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 they, yeah, they well, promised they'd be further along. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Now, what, however, what is going on is that if you go to virtually any of your utility firms, the people who are actually generating electricity, they are just under immense political pressure to switch to more renewables. I mean, it is it is very very it is a very very strong and powerful political force on them. So they're doing it anyway. I mean, they're going to they're going to switch to it, even though there are issues associated with um, uh, reliability, associated with other aspects of, of the, all the things that you and I have been talking about that are negative. They are still being uh, politically pressured uh, to uh, uh, to, uh, to to switch to renewable. So I, I think it's a march that's going to continue on, and uh, I think it's going to be slow. Because people are going to find out about the cost of it, especially the utility cost of it. So I think there's going to be, there's just going to be a problem there down the line. Yeah, it'd be nice to see just kind of iron out a little bit. And instead of trying to, you know, say everything's for this, maybe you just figure out the pockets they're good for. I mean, you know, farmers figured out a pretty good use for wind a long time ago. And solar power yeah. seems to power up cell phones and batteries pretty mm-hmm. you know the, the smaller type things and so maybe mm-hmm. may, maybe that's just more of the conversation is is how after 20 years of pretty good r&d what is wind and solar actually used for and mm-hmm. how can we best maximize it and, and, and admit maybe some of these things are wrong but anyway that's well i, I mean I, yeah. I, will, I will tell you that you've probably figured it out for the number of times you and i've talked before is that I'm kind of a, a mar- very market-oriented economist, and so my position is uh, we 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 try to keep the government as much out of this as possible and let the market work it out. And in, 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 in smart, clever, greedy capitalists will figure out you know exactly how much wind and solar should be in there. If it really is a net positive addition to our electricity grid, smart, clever, greedy capitalists will figure that out. Just like smart, clever, greedy capitalists have figured out how to get oil out of the ground in North Dakota and get it out of the ground even when the price of oil sometimes drops as low as $30 a barrel. They know how to do that profitably because they're they're cl- they're smart they're clever they're they're motivated by pro- the you know by the profit motive, and that is a very very powerful motive. And to the extent that the profit motive will bring in wind and solar, let it do it, but keep the subsidies out of the picture, in my opinion. How about when it comes to uh, the political landscape that we're into right now, where um, 
the narrative has shifted quite a bit. And one of the things that we've talked about on this program, and I think you and I have even talked about it a little bit, is this cult of environmentalism that's been on the rise. And it's we've been tracking it for about five years because it's it to to well, it's gotten to the point where it's it's beyond politics. And you've got, you know, you've got Colorado doing what they're doing. They've they've passed some new laws that make it very difficult for about sixty percent of the uh, land to be drilled on and the governor came out and called it the war on oil and gas and then you've got oregon just passed in the senate a similar bill that colorado proposition 112 went through on and a federal judge in wyoming put a halt on some leases some for the first time and now you got two presidential candidates bernie sanders and elizabeth warren actually saying in their presidential platform they're going to ban oil and gas drilling if elected. This is getting out of hand. What's going on? I mean, whatever happened to plastic straws? <laughs> I mean, I mean, did well, they? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, again, I'm an economist, so I tend to think of these things in economic terms. Uh, and so, first of all, I think this is going. This is going far beyond science now, and it's now. Uh, well, to, to no small extent, it's religion to many people as opposed to being silent. Well, I mean, what I tell people is I, I show them a picture of the price of oil, a, a graph of what it's done since 1980. And and I tell them that I taught forecasting to MBAs, executive MBAs at LSU for 30 years. And I would show them this picture and I'd say, this is the second most difficult thing in the economy to forecast in the future. And you can see why. It's, very, it's highly variable. It bounces all over the place. And it moves for reasons that are very unpredictable. I mean, who could have predicted in 2014, for example, the latter part of 2014, that the Saudis would suddenly pump a whole lot of oil on the market? Who would have guessed that and then drive the price down to under 30 at one point? Who could have predicted that? Then I'll show them a picture of the price of the, the uh, uh, food consumption in the United States, which is a nice, neat, straight line going straight up. And I said, scientifically speaking, it's clear that it's easier to forecast food consumption than it is oil prices. I mean, it doesn't take a, a giant, a middle giant to figure that out. It's statistics. The more stable something is, the easier it is to forecast. And so oil prices are, I can tell them, the second most difficult thing to forecast because it's very highly variable and unpredictable what it's going to do. And I say, if I told you I could forecast the price of oil 20 years in the future, plus or minus $2 a barrel, and we should change all of our living standards all of our tax structure and everything based on my ability to forecast oil prices, he would say, you are nuts. We can see that it's very difficult for We can't do that. We're not going to do that. And oil prices are the second most difficult thing to forecast. The most difficult thing to forecast is the climate. It's changing all the time, and it's changing for reasons that are very unpredictable, in my humble opinion. And so the idea that we should change our entire lifestyle and our tax structure and everything on the notion that somebody can forecast the climate, weather, I don't care what you call it, 20 years in the future, plus or minus two degrees, to me is absurd. That is just scientifically absurd. And, and, and one, of the, one of the indicators is absurd. I say, let's do, let's do a little, let's do a little uh, investigation. Go back and look at what the headline said on the first Earth Day about 33 years ago. And the headlines on first Earth Day 33 years ago were man-made 
global cooling is going to destroy the earth. We don't do something about it. That's what they said. And then, of course, we had the hockey stick in the, in the 90s, and it switched to man-made global warming is going to destroy the earth. We don't do something about it. Well, then suddenly the warming thing kind of went flat. It didn't warm anymore. So they had to come up with another angle. And so that was man-made, and this is, this is the silliest scientific phrase I've ever heard, man-made climate change. Well, how in the heck do you measure climate change? Of course the climate's going to change. Are you mad? Of course it's going to change. And, uh, and so I just think it's silly. And the primary reason it is silly and the primary reason is that there's so much activity behind it is because, Jason, this is a huge industry. This is like a $2 billion industry funded by governments around the world. And they are not going to do anything to stop that money coming in. They're going to keep making the case that this is a problem that's going to destroy us all. That's the only way they're going to get government to keep, continue to give them $2 billion a year. So I, I just, I, you know, my, when I see a, a situation like this, which makes no sense, my response is follow the money. Why, why are people promoting this? And I think it's because there's so much money to be made in the sector. Well, what I think is really kind of interesting in this whole environmental movement and this cult of environmentalism, religion is of environmentalism as well, is that we 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 have we we've gotten beyond plastic straws. So at one point, the plastic bags and plastic straws, everybody was okay with it. Even the oil industry was okay with it because they knew they would figure out a new way to use that plastic in a new way. I mean, the market would, would decide, oh, you don't want straws? Okay, well, we'll just figure out a new hard plastic that pools can go in everybody's backyard for under two grand instead. You know, it'll, so, market will work itself out is what I'm getting at. Now it just seems like the t- environmentalist of today just texts and trolls and drinks Keurig coffee and points fingers at things and they don't really go out and do anything they, they don't actually go out and try to you know ed bagley jr god bless his soul drove around in a garbage powered car for a long time you know and and that's why people talk to him because he was walking the walk and living it too now it just seems like it's it's a catchphrase and it's a political movement type thing to where like i said two presidential candidates are actually saying a very ridiculous statement which is we're going to ban oil and gas drilling. That That is like, honestly, inviting the world to become the walking dead without zombies in a week. I mean, could you imagine without having oil and gas activity immediately? That'd be unreal. Yeah. Could, I mean, that's, that's, it'd, be, it'd be remarkably remarkably silly. But, that, well, you know, there's a, whole, there's a whole cadre of people out there that want to keep it in the ground. But they, they have no idea. They have, they, they have no idea about the next stage. They have no idea about the next day. They have no idea about the limitations of well, wind and solar that you and I have talked about before. Well, even it's just, it's re- it's just re- really remarkably, remarkably silly. It's like AOC's idea that you know we'll we'll we'll, we'll go from uh, the United States to Europe on a you know, floatable train or something like that instead of planes. It's just it's silly stuff. Well, I, I, I equate it to, it's like um, the, the guy, that fringe candidate, uh, what's his name, uh, Vermin Supreme, that wears a boot on his head, looks like a Merlin guy, 
And uh, he wants to, you know, do like dragon legislation because Game of Thrones is popular and he knows that'll catch on. That's what it sounds like to me. You make up something absurd like dragon legislation because it sounds hip and cool and you can pander to the lowest common denominator type thing. That's that's kind of what it seemed like to me. But um, talk to me a little bit about what's going on in, in the in, in that narrative then. I mean, you know, is it um, is this picking up? steam this this let's let's ban it i mean like i said it's happening in a couple states now to where they're doing this yeah well i mean it, here's the interesting thing is that uh, when you look at polls and you ask people where does climate change in the united states where does this rank in terms of your issues of concern the climate change is way the heck down the list i mean there are a lot of things people are way more concerned about than climate change and that's why i think you know Here's here's my position. People always vote their pocketbook, and and what's going to happen in 2020 is people are not going to people are going to look around and say how's the economy doing, and that's what's going to determine who they vote for. Uh, if it's doing really really well, they tend to vote for the incumbent or the incumbent party. If the economy is starting to sink and looking bad, then they vote for the other party. That's just that's just the kind of the way it goes. And so, uh, and I, I think that's a little bit what was at stake in in 2016 in the vote we had there between Hillary and uh, between Hillary and um, and, the, and Trump. The economy was not doing very well; it had not done very well for eight years, and then suddenly, you know, you have somebody come along that changes the uh, the policies, and now the economy is growing faster. What you know, whatever you think about how crazy he may act from time to time. Some of the policy changes he's made have, have significantly helped the economy to grow better. The reduction in regulations and the lower tax rates are two key things that come to mind. His, his policies on international trade are, are a little more problematic. But uh, those other two things, reducing regulation and reducing tax rates, has been had a significant impact in terms of boosting the economy uh, so far. Talk to me a little bit about your speaking gigs. Uh, of course, Lauren C. Scott, Dr. Lauren C. Scott on the line with us here. And he's been speaking. I met him a number of years ago in the Bakken. Uh, I know you spoke there. You, you big down in the Texas, Louisiana as well. But uh, give yourself a little bit of a, a plug for who you're speaking for these days and what your topics of conversation are. Well, uh, what I... If I get outside of the state of Louisiana, of course, in the state of Louisiana, people are mainly interested in what's going on here, specifics about specific towns. When I go, for example, I was in Denver recently talking to a group, and um, I've been over in the Georgia area, been over at Auburn area of uh, Alabama, and I'll be going to um, the Sanderson part of the uh, Florida Panhandle in about a week to speak to groups. And what we're doing there is talking mainly about two things we're talking about the national economy in general and how the national economy is doing what the outlook is for the national economy and some of the key threats to it and then the other thing is i'm just talking to people about energy prices because there are there are in the in the u.s economy things that are what i call super prices they you know the price of a can of soup is not a super price uh the price of a pair of shoes not a super price but the price of money Rights are a supervisor. That affects everything. And the same is true of oil and natural gas. So I do talk to them about 
what they might expect to see happening to the price of oil and the price of natural gas, or some some of the kind of key factors, what's going on in the in those in those industries right now. So the national economy, and then three kind of super prices: interest rates, price of oil, price of natural gas. A lot of energy conferences, I bet. A lot of probably an, annual lunch, annual dinners too. Yeah, there's all there's just really kind of all kind. They're all over the place. Um, you know. The banking, the banking people are keenly interested, like this group I'm talking to in Sandus as a banking industry. The one I talked to in uh, in uh, Denver was uh, the people who uh, work, take take care of uh, places like McDonald's and Burger King. They're they're, they're actual facilities. They are their maintenance. They they have big firms that maintain and keep these these facilities for these large retail establishments and large commercial establishments. So I mean, the group the group I talk to the the groups I talk to tend to vary all over the place. I'm going to talk to some people uh, later on the year. Uh, the Tom Bigby Waterway people are people who operate along that waterway over in the uh, Tennessee Alabama area. So it's it's just there, you know the type of client is all over the place because super prices affect everybody as it turns out, and so does the national economy. Dr. Lawrence C. Scott on the line of this, kind of wrapping up here as we wind everything down. You know, I I mentioned I, I wanted to bring up a topic to you because we are. The thing that I'm kind of speaking on, because, you know, I get invited to introduce people. I'm MC in the Bakken Barbecue uh, next week, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's a little like you're more of a keynote speaker. I'm more of a, you know, a paid monkey type thing, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, hey, we all got our place, right? Hey, and, uh, we're all capitalists. We're all capitalists. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. So uh, one of the things I'm adding to it is, you know, just kind of a short little presentation on some things. And I'd, I'd really like to hear your reaction on this because... Over the course of the last, you know, like I said, five years, this this rise of environmentalism has happened to where it's gotten into crazy town. It is. It's 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 gotten to a, a point of of ludicrousness and ridiculousness in their in their truest of Webster's de- definition. Um, I actually truly kind of believe this that we live in a day and age where the average environmentalist texts and trolls and drinks Keurig coffee and points figures, whereas the oil and gas industries out there every day doing reclamation and figuring out new ways to save the planet every day. I, I have no problem saying the oil and gas industry is one of the leaders in saving the planet right now. What do you think of that? Well, I think that's, I think that's right. And I think <laughs> the, the, thing, the thing that a lot of people don't realize, for example, uh, one of the things my firm does, we do a lot of economic impact studies. And one of the things we did was the economic impact of the four Exxon facilities that exist here in Baton Rouge. We have a big refinery and and three big uh, chemical plants here. And here's what you will find is is not only do they create a lot of jobs, not only do they generate a lot of taxes to help support our schools, teachers, etc., Exxon Mobil is the number one contributor to the United Way in the Baton Rouge area by far. I mean, the United Way would, would be a fraction of what it is now were it not for the fact that uh, that ExxonMobil was here. These companies tend to be one of the one of the biggest supporters of civic causes uh, in in just about any community in which they locate, and that's that's an untold story 
about a lot of these conflicts. You don't, you don't, you don't find, for example, uh, the liberal area of the LSU campus. You won't find, you won't, you will find hardly any donations coming out of that area to the United Way. But you take somebody like the the, the company that's always under attack. ExxonMobil or Dow Chemical or some of these others, they are typically the largest contributors to the United Way in any community that they're in. Same thing. Up, I, I just did an interview today about Whiting Petroleum donated two hundred thousand dollars, so uh, a new wing in a hospital could have babies mm-hmm. and everything like that. And that I, br- I bring this up all the time, and that's actually getting back to the beginning part of the subsidies. I'm with you. I'm not a big subsidy guy, but. My justification for it was the oil industry gets taxed more than anybody. They pay more fees than anybody. They all got, they get regulated more than anybody, and they still pay to make sure that the kids got softball uniforms and the churches can have bake sales. And you know what I mean? They, these civic causes and these social causes that the government's supposed to kind of help out anyway, they don't seem to. And the oil and gas industry seems to just continually pick up a lot of drop balls that other people seem to, so that communities at least can have a decent quality of life. I agree. That's a very undertold story. That's why we here try to continue to tell those stories, because they are really important. They're very important sure. and told. So, sure. Well, let's sure. wrap her up here. How can people get in touch with you, hire you, pay you some money, have you come speak, and uh, also maybe uh, send you an email if they, if they want you to uh, do an economic report? Well, if they want to uh, contact me, they can contact me on my cell at 225 225- nine three seven four two eight three and if they want to contact me uh, by email uh l scott at uh, excuse me l scott econ at gmail.com l scott econ econ at gmail.com